0: Everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a Black feminist and ecological lens. My name is Alyssa, and my pronouns are she, her, hers.
1: I
2: think you didn't do
0: record on Zoom. That's
2: okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> hello, <laughs> hello. I'm Brendan, or Brendanne, if you're in on the inside joke. <laughs> Um, I use she, her, hers pronouns as well. And today we're talking fugitivity, black feminisms, and it and their reimaginations, excuse me, I just want to say it's um, and resistance with a special guest, my South Carolina soul sister, Naomi Simmons Thorne. I'm so excited.
0: Yes, we are doing something very different on the podcast for the next couple episodes. So we hope that you all will stay tuned. But in terms of Naomi, we have mentioned her quite a few times on the podcast. She is a brilliant, mm-hmm. and so we thought it was time to bring her on the mic so you all could hear her brilliance for yourselves. But before we get started, we wanted to express our gratitude for our supporters. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has donated to the podcast or engaged with us on Instagram and Twitter. We would not be doing this without you.
2: Period. Period. period (laughs) literally would not have the money to pay people
0: we would not and we put we we truly put the money to good use as we always say but have not actually (laughs) brought to fruition (laughs) big things are popping little things are stopping no but seriously big things are popping it just takes time and lawyers so Yeah. There you go. (laughs) So if you would like to donate, head to our website, Zora'sDaughters.com. We also love non-monetary support. So if you could, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram or Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. Also, what we find is that the way most people hear about us and follow us and love our podcast is through word of mouth. So please share our podcast with your friends, your family, or you can just play it really loudly while you're cleaning on Saturday
2: morning for your neighbors. Right, because um, that's what I do. You know, my upstairs <laughs> neighbor knows us, uh, <laughs> uh, and I feel like you know, neighbors need to learn Black Feminist Theory as well, right? Like, yeah, why not? You know, why not learn? Why not learn it from us? Spark, spark um, the fire. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Alyssa, what's our what's our word for today? Our word for today is
0: fugitivity. And I simply have to say that we have been setting up these episodes really nicely, because if you listen to the last episode, you may remember that we actually chatted briefly about marronage and fugitivity and why one is more commonly used in the scholarly literature that aligns itself with Black studies versus Caribbean studies. We weren't really that sure, but, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) here we are talking about fugitivity. And so, as, you know, we often do with these words, I tried to do a quick search about the history, trying trying to find out when the concept of fugitivity came to be used in the way that it's used right now. It seems like there was a dissertation in 1996, and then in 1997, Samira Kawash had a chapter called Freedom and Fugitivity in her book, The Trouble with the Color Line. And so it's then in the early 2000s where you start to get poet Nathaniel Mackey, Afro-pessimist scholar Fred Moten, and African-American studies professor Daphne Brooks theorizing fugitivity as a category of the irregular that escapes easy representation, expression, or explanation.
2: Exactly. So fugitivity is not just about the ways we flee the plantation, right? It's not just about being a literal fugitive from a captive place. And we can think of the plantation per our former episode on plantation futures, which you should listen to, right? There is the historical plantation, the physical place, right? And also the plantation future that is our present and our future. So as Tina Camp explained in a lecture at Barnard College in 2014, the concept of fugitivity highlights the tension between the acts or flights of escape, and creative practices of refusal, nimble, and strategic practices that undermine the category of the dominant.
0: It actually reminds me a lot of when you said in our episode about cultural appropriation that we as Black folks do not always need to explain our words, explain our language, explain our hair. Mm -hmm. We don't need to explain these things to outsiders. These are things that we develop to survive, right? They are forms of fugitivity, particularly when it comes to things like language. And so in that sense, it kind of reminded me of Edouard Glissant's concept of opacity. So something he says that we must clamor for the right to for everyone. So everyone should have the right to opacity. And so I definitely see parallels with fugitivity and refusal and perceptibility, queering.
2: Refusal is integral to understanding Black fugitivity. And I think, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but, um, Fugitivity now is a term that people have picked up Mm -hmm. and um, used in a lot of different cases that aren't necessarily fugitive, you know, or fugitive. Like, I would not say this is fugitivity um, because what is central to this is this politics of refusal, this politics of you don't get to know who I am. You don't get to perceive me or the perception of me that you have may not be how I see myself right so this this idea of affect which if you know my research you know I am obsessed with affect right and this idea that how we as black people move through the world might not be the way that we see ourselves moving through it and some of it can be intentional um and then some of it can just be anti-black misrecognition but I'm gonna get off my little my little (laughs) thing my little horse
0: (laughs) your little research horse
2: (laughs) My research voice before I um tell my whole dissertation out here. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> well, first, what I want to ask ourselves, what I want to ask you, what I want to ask myself are we undoing fugitivity by explaining fugitivity? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I mean, even when we think about Afro pessimism and things like that, you know, I mentioned. I believe it was in that episode that there are some scholars who simply say, I do not want to be understood by the masses. I don't want my work to be mm-hmm. um you know, easily understood and then disseminated and transformed. They want people to do the work in order to understand. They want people to enter into a particular community or world or way of thinking before, before actually being able to grasp, understand, and even more so utilize the concepts that they're working with. And so... Yeah, that may be a question that we need to work with on ourselves.
2: I, I mean, I think there's there's lines between like defining a word and being like, so here's fugitivity and here's how all Black people practice it. There's like step A, B, and C, and then you have you know one, two, three under A, and you <laughs> know, which some people on TikTok when they are like putting it out there about especially African American vernacular, it's like. I'm going to explain to you all the conjugations and permutations of this word, and it's like, hold on, it's one thing to use it, but it's a whole nother thing to literally be like, here's access to this information when you already have enough privilege in this world that you can move through without knowing it. Like this is this does not add to your toolkit of survival; it adds to your toolkit of domination, mm. right? Um, so I do think, and we'll get to that, right? Like at the at the end of this section, I, I have a little little thing to say <laughs> about fugitivity as we close out <laughs> all
0: right well then we will continue moving forward so fugitivity itself it exists within a frame of captivity or what damien's Sejoiner mm-hmm. calls enclosed places and so he has an essay it's called another life is possible black fugitivity and enclosed places and he understands black fugitivity as quote informed by a historical and political trajectory in which the fugitive is the simultaneous embodiment of life, culture, and pathways to freedom on the one hand, and the singular exposure of the state as a tenuous system of unstable structures constantly teetering on the brink of illegitimacy on the other. So fugitivity Mm. is diffuse in black culture, particularly in music and writing, but that freedom and that escape makes us unacceptable to the mainstream. And so essentially, freedom and captivity coexist when we refuse to shrink ourselves or make ourselves easy to understand. And so Martha Feldman, she's and she's referring to Fred Moten, she explains that it is, quote, only when a black being recognizes their oppression, victimization, or commodification by speaking, talking back, or refusing to be named and delimited, does fugitivity become a lived reality. Only then does it move in its characteristic temporal arc bending toward the future, mm. even while haunted by a past that is never past. end quote Oh
2: haunted by a past that's never passed. that sounds like this brilliant theorist I know who's you know on the mic with me but
0: you know I will <laughs> I did say that in my research proposal, <laughs> didn't I? <laughs> mm-hmm. Those aren't really my words. I mean that's you know that's trio, that's glee song know the past that has never passed the history that is not past is Glissant. I am simply no. <laughs> the
2: mediator <laughs> right. I think something that was really important in what you're saying is is thinking about fugitivity is is what a political stance is type of action that is contingent on the present situation, right? So one can't really look to the past and be like, you know, well, actually, let me not say that. Let me pause. I'm going to say it. it's contingent on the present situation. So one person can practice fugitivity in one space and not in the other. And so I can be fugitivity, practicing a fugitive quote, right? In the academic space where I choose not to explain myself, but then I might enter into another captive space where I need to be fully present. Right? And so it's it's all about what Tina Kemp said, those little moments of refusal and it's important really to underscore that fugitivity necessitates moving outside the confining space right so a lot of people as i was saying earlier i was gonna come back to right are picking up fugitivity today as a synonym for like decolonization decolonial methods or even liberation and um Fugitivity does not necessarily have to be decolonial or liberating. Sometimes I think we think that survival tactics are liberation, and um, you know, I don't, I don't want to confuse the two or muddle the two. And also, in my opinion, I will be that person to say this. Alyssa does not have to agree. I don't think that fugitivity is something that non-black people can do or really observe in a way that's like, I can call this fugitivity. So I'm speaking to you researchers, those white folks in particular, who read about fugitivity in books mm. and then decide one that they enacted, which how how do you as a white person leave the captive space? We always talk about black people not being able to leave the captive space, but how do you as a white person leave the captive space? Doesn't the captive space move with you wherever you go? I, I want you to sit and think about that. But (laughs) uh, my frustration really comes from like people who consider themselves to be liberal or radical educators in spaces who say they do fugitivity in the classroom Hmm. with their students. And it's like how you are still contained in the classroom. You still have to grade your students. You are still in a position of power as a teacher. You are still a white person in the classroom doing these things. You're a white person writing about black people. How is any of this fugitivity some of the responses are oh i don't have permission from whoever is you know in authority over me and y'all doing stuff without permission does not mean that you're doing fugitivity it just means you're doing things without permission like you know (laughs) if it doesn't move you to if it doesn't move you towards freedom right then it's not a fugitive act um but, yeah, I think I'm going to get off my my second soapbox of the day um, <laughs> so that we can get into our next section, I mean, which well, is...
0: I, I was actually going to say, I mean, oh. some... I will say that I think for some, it's not necessarily about the arrival at that, at that particular place, right? It's about mm-hmm. the movement towards. And so mm. I... I will push back a little bit on the idea that you that you do have to completely and always exit the confined space, right? Like there is fugitivity in the motion towards attempting to exit, right? And so, you know, there are some places where as of right now in the world that we live we can't we can't. We, can't. we have to live in this in this world even as we're trying to make a new one, right?
2: Yeah. I I don't Disagree with you, actually. I think, yeah, your point is a good one. I, and maybe I was being a little heavy-handed in what <laughs> I was saying. Um, I, I, because fugitivity is, to me, is not the same as, like, at least how we practice it today. I don't see it the same as, like, actually exiting or leaving, like, the academy, for instance, right? right? I think of it as, like you were saying, those practices of not really explaining, you know, maybe I don't attend the faculty meetings. Um, I've never been to a faculty meeting, y'all. I'm just saying that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I don't attend these places where I know I'm going to experience harm. Um, and I that can be a fugitive act. I think for me, the difference I'm trying to make between an act that's fugitive versus something that's just like disobedient is like, fugitivity like you're saying moves towards freedom mm. versus something that's like for me like some people think oh this is when it gets I, th- complicated. I think what you're saying i think
0: i think what i am yeah. what you might be trying to get at is that it's not fugitivity if it if it's still within the boundaries of the status quo
2: yeah right yeah Okay. not still within the boundaries of the status quo and also just like it's not fugitivity if this is a decision that i'm just thinking about really how white people misuse the word i'm not really mm. thinking about black people <laughs> i'm thinking about how this, this word gets taken up in other spaces um kind of how intersectionality got taken up and then right. are taken up and now it doesn't hold the same meaning in all the spaces that it used to so i'm very wary about that but absolutely like if it's still in, within the confines of the status quo like can it be moving towards freedom No say. No (laughs) say. You know this is a trilingual podcast. Exactly.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of trilingual, three people, we are going to bring on our guest for our next segment. What we're reading.
2: Anyway, uh, as exciting as this conversation has been, let's get to our next section, which is what we're reading today. So Alyssa, what are we reading today?
0: All right. So what we're reading is Black Feminist Theory and Its Wayward Futures by Naomi Simmons Thorne. And we are doing something a little bit different for the next couple episodes. Our guests will be joining us for two segments to help us discuss what we're reading and what in the world. Today, we have Naomi Simmons-Thorn to help us discuss her award-winning paper, Black Feminist Theory and Its Wayward Futures. Naomi Simmons-Thorn is a graduate student at the University of South Carolina, where she studies teacher education, qualitative research, and foundations slash philosophy of education pursuant to a master's in secondary education. Her work seeks to explore the schooling experiences of black and post-colonial subjects, black pedagogical thought and history, social reproduction in schools, and curricular strategies for emancipatory social justice movements. Her work draws on critical social theory, semiotics, cultural studies, post-Marxism and black feminist thought. Naomi has served as a fellow at the Department of Education funded Research Institute for Scholars of Equity and the Center for Minority Serving Institutions at the Rutgers Graduate School of Education. Most recently, she was awarded the inaugural Cheryl A. Wall Prize in black women's studies. Naomi is US-born of Trinidadian descent, Morfaya, and identifies as a Black transgender woman. Welcome to the Zoom studio Naomi. I saw the, I saw the gun fingers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's so great to be with you all thanks again for the invitation
2: it's so wonderful to have you with us um and recently naomi announced that her article has been accepted to feminist theory journal so when it's published you will be able to access it there pow 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 put the the guns what'd you say the guns up
1: (laughs) (laughs) it has in fact i just got that um news today so it's so serendipitous that the day that, like, I was invited on to, like, discuss the article was the day I got the news that it was accepted.
2: Um, we love we love the small, small miracles and the large miracles. Um, and just, again, affirmation of what we already knew about your brilliance. So uh,
1: we love to see it. I'm sending Brendan to but Y'all can't see it. <laughs>
2: um, before we get started asking questions and really diving into the article, I wanted to give a quick summary for our listeners um, because i think it's necessary to understand why naomi's intervention is so critical and so simmons thorne opens the article by presenting the conundrum that black feminist theory studies and again that's the name i came up for it um, (laughs) currently faces that aligns with its tendency to bifurcate alongside two different disciplines which are women's and gender studies and black studies so typically what we see happening within women's and gender studies disciplines is that they use the paradigm of black feminist theory as critical social theory to help us understand and explain the world. And it typically relies on lived experience of people of different um, identity markers. All right, and so this has been framed as a more practical approach versus a theoretical approach but it really reflects a lot of what Alyssa and I have talked about on the podcast about Black feminism. So an example of critical social theory that Naomi talks about in this article, but we all might be aware of, is uh, intersectionality, which was developed by Kimberly Crenshaw, but we all know also finds its roots in the Combahee River Collective statement. The other side of this, like right, Black feminist theory, is, Bifurcation, but is in no means a binary, right? In our ways of thinking about it, is Black feminist theory as speculative theorizing. So examples of this would be Christina Sharpe's work, Saidiya Hartman's work, uh, Hortense Spillers is kind of the exemplar work that um, shows us how to think in this way. So what Naomi's article does. Is it maps the relationship between these contesting paradigms, and to help illustrate what she terms as a black feminist rupture, and to also create a bridge language, which we'll get back to the bridge that she bring up towards the end, um, to bring these contesting paradigms together. So we're gonna unpack some of the more finer points of this article with Naomi today, but I thought that this primer would be necessary, um, and so my first question for you, Naomi. Wait, can I just say before
1: we get started that wow, that was such an incredible summary of like my intervention (laughs) and what this work is attempting to do. And I really appreciate that too, because thus far um, I have um, three institutional eyes have seen this paper, Um, Mm. the journal that I was accepted at and two different um, award competitions, one of which uh, I won, the other one, we're not gonna talk about it, but
2: period. He <laughs> That's all right.
1: That's <laughs> all right. But anyways, um, but so um So far, the only eyes I have really had on this paper has been institutional eyes. And institutional eyes are very different from the way that your colleagues and um, Mm -hmm. more importantly, your comrades read your work. And so Mm -hmm. the way that you discuss my work um, feels really true to what my intentions were and also what it was that I um, believed myself to be saying. And so now um, that I am contending with my um, revise and resubmit for this um, journal, I am Mm -hmm. having to, you know, really grapple with the institutional um, desires to frame my article in a particular way, include certain voices that I probably um, did not emphasize as much as the journal would like to see emphasized, and you know Mm -hmm. all the politics. So it's really wonderful to have you um, break my article down like that while it still exists in that way.
2: you know that's so good we just got the exclusive version we got the exclusive version that's what that is
0: that we did and i just i i will say there is a lot of projecting onto your work when it's read people want your work to do something particular Mm -hmm. even though that's not necessarily what your intention is that was literally
1: the first comment of the first reviewer i wanted to do blank.
0: (laughs) yep
2: That's Academia, folks. Da The ghetto that is Academia. Um I I'm sorry that they are asking you to, to shift things. I thought this was a very it was to me it was very clear what was going on, but I also am invested in, in highlighting Mm-hmm. the work of black feminists right and, and like explicitly so um so i can imagine who is expected to be called into your article is that um yes so uh naomi in our communication about this episode because naomi and i are actually real life you know friends family comrades we hear um You talked about Jennifer Nash's book, Black Feminism, Reimagined After Intersectionality being a major kind of thinking companion. And that's my words for it, right, for this piece. So what about her work would you want to highlight for our audience as we discuss yours?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Jennifer, and I actually love that um, concept of the thinking companion because I think that's exactly what that book was for me. I remember when I watched the Toni Morrison um, documentary that came out like a year or two ago, I remember when... um when Sonia Sanchez was talking about the first time she read Bluest Eye and she talked, she talked about like literally fighting with that book and like mm. throwing it around the room. And like, <laughs> that was me and, um, and Black Feminism Reimagine. Me and that book fought, mm.
2: like,
1: mm. I don't know who won, but me and that book fought. <laughs> and um... You won,
2: you're getting published. So you won.
1: <laughs> and um, yeah, and so me and that book really like tussled and um, there was so much of a, that book pushed me um, in ways that were really uncomfortable when I first read it, but um, in retrospect, I know that were really helpful and instructive. And um, I think that book has um, lots of fascinating things to say. I think it does really important work. Uh, so, also some things I don't like about the book all that much, and I jump into some of that too. But mm-hmm. for me, um, and this also kind of plays a little bit into like my inquiry methods. And so, for me, um, when I do my work, um, and I've talked to you about this before, Brendan, I bifurcate my work between my professional academic work, the stuff that like I do for the academy, and then I have my work as an intellectual that I do for me and for my world and my communities and um, my scholarship activism. And so this text, um, this paper comes from that right side, the scholarship Mm -hmm. activism that I do, not my formal academic work in education. Mm -hmm. And so for me as an intellectual and as a philosopher, what I do and when I'm generating inquiry, I am not responding to um, gaps in the literature. I'm not responding to um i'm not responding to um i'm not weighing in on academic debates what i'm doing is um gazing out at my world trying to figure out what's going on and using the scholarly tools i have to make sense of what's going on in my world Mm. and in my world um when i was making that transition from a pwi um that does not have a black studies department and received most of my engagements, the limited engagements I did have with Black feminism. Um, black feminist theory came from a women and gender studies department. Mm. And I was making a transition from undergraduate to graduate, where there isn't, and I'm still at the same university, but at the graduate school, while there isn't um, a Black studies department, there are Black studies scholars who are in the graduate school who are doing the contemporary work of black studies and so making that transition was really difficult for me because I was like my whole citational universe just got like pulled from out from underneath Mm. and I didn't really understand like why it felt like there was like these two black feminisms uh, black feminist theories that existed and i only knew one of them and only like interacted and engaged with one of them needless to say that i definitely have a home in black feminist critical theory because that is just though um in terms of how i understand the world um i find that to be the most um useful tool for me in terms of understanding Um, how different forces converge on my own life and making sense of all that stuff but there's also lots that I've been learning from and um, integrating into my work from this other Black feminist paradigm that prior to graduate school I really didn't have any exposure to. Mm -hmm. So this paper really is about me kind of coming to terms with that. And um, and making sense of it, figuring out how these two things that seem so disparate actually interrelate, and um, what their relationship could be, because it doesn't have to be a contentious one.
2: Right, and I think as you as you're talking, I'm listening, and I think I hear that rupture when you talk about that that move from undergraduate to graduate, and and, and that feeling of rupture. Um, and while reading this, it made me think about. Um, when I entered graduate school and I used intersectionality, that was kind of like my, um, and then we're gonna talk about this because you can test this in the article within itself. It was kind of like the starter theory, right? People kind of mm-hmm. refer to intersectionality as like this kind of starter theory. And so I was using it as a frame of reference for understanding how Black women move through the world. And I remember being told by a professor that I'll grow out of that. Literally, <laughs> I will grow out of using intersectionality. Wow! Um, wow! <laughs> <laughs> which is like you know, as you note know, in your article, right? Mm-hmm. Black feminist critical theory is often considered to be black feminist theories past tense. Right? It is. Mm-hmm. It is the um, and the quotes that you use when you when you're talking about. You know, girls feeling grown, right? It is the girl the mm-hmm. less sophisticated version of this kind of more abstract, right? Sophisticated, and I'm using air quotes for y'all can't say this, but I'm using air quotes, right? Um, form of theory that spe- speculative theory can be. And so I think you really insightfully characterize this view, um, this kind of move from the, the starter, right? The child to the grown woman theory, if we're going to use that that language, right, as a, as a type of temporal consciousness, which you frame as a reconfiguring of Paulo Freire's um, critical consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so you define temporal consciousness as heightened a heightened sense of reflexivity concerning Black feminist theories, institutional migration, historicity, and futures. And so Alyssa and I are very much into temporality in our work. We think about time all the time Mm -hmm. um and i think it's really central to understanding this type of temporal temporal consciousness is central to understanding the contestation between the paradigms so could you explain how you came to develop your understanding of temporal consciousness like what and you can even talk about the process if you want to or just even for this article like how did you come to develop this for us as readers
1: Yes. So um, as I began, and also I should um, point out that this paper is also very informed by my position as a philosopher, because philosophers are concerned with how um, thought traditions are organized and what their relationships Mm. are to each other and breaking down taxonomy and um, there's not a lot of that that's done in black feminist theory to our detriment and so this was um really important for me to understand and so when i'm looking at two different thought traditions i'm considering um what are the epistemological structures that i see how can i outline those epistemological epistemological structures how can i organize them how can i map them what how do they relate to each other what are the um what is the genealogy of these of this thought and so um, as I am reading across um, different um, Black feminist theorists who are working in this um, speculative paradigm, I am noticing that, like you know, um, temporality is um, is um, a major theme. It's it's um, this mm-hmm. it's this reoccurring, um, it's this reoccurring um, epistemic theme that I'm seeing across these different works. And um, it's really interesting because while that's happening there, on the other side, there's also conversations that are happening about the ways in which intersectionality, which typifies the Black feminist critical theory paradigm, how intersectionality has been transported from Mm -hmm. one place in the academy to the next, Mm -hmm. um, how it's being um, vacated of meaning, um, how the edge is being dulled because of Um, the intentions of specific political actors who are intentionally trying to do that. And so um, there's these interesting conversations going on, not together, but around each other, around temporality. And so when I'm thinking about the speculative paradigm, um, specifically, I'm thinking a lot about this um, emerging like concept and discourse around Black feminist um, futurity. And what it means for Black feminism to step into the future. What does it even mean mm-hmm. for Black feminists theory to have a past? Mm-hmm. What is that past? What is that future? I'm thinking about the ways in which futurity implies a novelty and mm, um, progress. Pr- all the narratives, right? Mm-hmm. Linear progress, all the narratives, development, all of the, all those narratives, and so a uh, futurity implies that um, it, it implies some kind of rupture with some kind of um, um, thing that is antiquated now. And what is that thing that is antiquated? And so, whereas um, in previous in previous um, discussions about Black feminist futurity. Um, black feminist theoretical development and maturation. It's never specifically said that what black feminism is moving past or moving from or developing from is black feminist critical theory, but it is implied methodologically. Um, it's implied through the engagement with Afro-pessimism. It's implied mm-hmm. through the new citational practices. and. Jennifer um, Nash gives us the first opportunity to um, actually put this conversation on the table and say, what are the stakes? Who are the actors? And how can we actually um, facilitate this discussion? Because this conversation that has been happening around each other, but not with each other. And so this notion of temporality, um, which I refer to as temporal consciousness in the article, um, really just kind of denotes this, um, really denotes this um, desire and um, this compulsion. If we wanna think about the political economy of um, intellectual work under the academic, under the jurisdiction of the academy, um, there's a political economy um, Mm -hmm. and a political economy necessitates development and Mm -hmm. progress. And um, I always say that, the value of a thought tradition, the value of um, a body of scholarship is not contingent on when it enters the academy because the academy is suppressing all of this knowledge. So when one manages Ooh. to rise to the top or manages to rise above the surface um, is not uh, necessarily an indicator of how useful it is. Um, it's more so an indication of when a um, an inflection point happened a contradiction in the academy happened and emerged the possibility for a certain kind of subversive knowledge so that black feminist critical theory's introduction to the academy in the 70s and 80s is not about its utility it's about the contradiction that existed at that time
2: Mm, wow (laughs) um look I have so much to say. Uh, I'm gonna give Alyssa an opportunity <laughs> to ask a question, so that this is not just me and Naomi chit-chatting. On, no, um, my, oh, the well, mic. my my follow-up
0: <laughs> question is so basic now in comparison to what you just said. <laughs> but I think you know one of the things that we do is help folks understand, right? And you know what I've noticed is that you're talking about, you're saying paradigm, right? You're talking about these Black feminist theory theoretical paradigms. And, you know, in our episode when we discussed intersectionality, we talked about the various waves of feminism, right? I think that's how mm-hmm. a lot of people learned about, learned about feminism, particularly white liberal feminism. Absolutely. And, you know, in university, if, if they managed to get that far. <laughs> and so, you know, we kind of learned a lot about, about the waves, the first, second, third wave. And now, you know, in the episode we mentioned fourth wave fem- feminism, which is apparently a thing now. But you say that that kind of spatial temporalization of feminism is not adequate for the historiography of Black feminism. So could you walk us through the idea of the paradigm for describing the changes in Black feminism and what kind of work that does um, to think of them in that way?
1: Mm Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is a question is really connected to this notion of temporality and in traditional liberal feminist historiography, we have the historiography of the waves. So we are told that um, feminism has at least three waves, um, according to which some scholars we are still in a third wave and according to some scholars, um, we are past that. I don't really know because I don't think that's a really useful way to, of thinking about um, <laughs> feminist theorizing, feminist thought, and feminist movement building. Um, but this concept um, in history, um, historiography of the ways has also been imposed onto Black feminist theory as of um, as of within the past ten to twenty years as mm. this kind of heightened sense of institutional reflexivity is developing. And so there's enough, there's a wide enough body of scholarship now. And I also want to be very specific that when I'm talking about Black feminist theory right now, I am specifically talking about its maneuvers in the academy, which is not to say that its maneu- maneuvers in the academy um, are, are more important than um, its other iterations and the other places that it exists. But it is to say that this is just one conversation and this is just the conversation I just so happened to write about in this paper. And so um, with that being said, um, within the past 10 to 20 years, it just has been um, a greater um, scholarly interest in how to periodize and um, Mm. create a historic historiography around Black feminist theory. Mm. It's kind of an epistemic imperative in the academy. And the Western Academy, which, you know, it could, not to say that it doesn't have its problems, but there's also things that are useful about thinking about periodization and um, histories and historiography, because it also helps us link things it helps us organize things. And so there's, of course, its benefits, advantages, and also its its costs. There has not been that critical of a uh, maneuver around how do we actually create um, a unique historiography for Black Feminist Theory. Um, the closest that I can think of, Farrah Griffin does some good work there, and also uh, Benita Roth. She does some also some really good work around that, too, and has done some really good work around that. But there hasn't really been a lot of historiographical debate the importation of the wave um, historiography has just found its way onto the trajectory of black feminist theory. And the reason why this, that this is problematic and doesn't work, at least in my conception, is one, because black feminist theorists have been specula- um, speculating for quite some time, way before the 80s with Hortense Spillers. I'm thinking specifically about Marita Bonner back in the 1920s, that's one person that I would point to. Um, of course, Octavia Butler is doing things. And also, we will never ever stop needing Black feminist critical theory ever. Right. We would not have a space to even have this discussion without Black feminist critical theory. So Black feminist critical theory is still needed, and black feminist speculative theorizing did not just start. And so a wave con- a wave historiography really um it um advances both of those misconceptions and um i also just don't find it uh to be accurate or helpful nonetheless because it implies um it implies that once again that when something enters into the academy denotes its utility and that's just not the case
2: yeah
0: that think yeah that's that's such a good point that makes so much sense i think i just wanted to throw out there you were talking about how there's always this desire to periodize history right and Mm -hmm. something we were talking about earlier in terms of fugitivity is the way that people are often trying to instrumentalize fugitivity Mm -hmm. so brennan was saying you know people would be like to to be fugitive you can do this a b c and then under Mm -hmm. that you do one two three and (laughs) (laughs) and then you know you're you're practicing fugitivity and so i think right? the i mean it's
1: industrial complex <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i just find it interesting how we're all like how you know how how is it that we come up with these concepts but also it's hard to keep them out of this out of this like academic space where we're required to exactly understand them in this in this like deep and instrumentalized way I don't know.
2: We'll talk about that a little bit after, though. Yeah, um, Yeah. yeah, we'll get to when we talk about fugitivity and what in, in the world. But I think in line with thinking about your rejection of the wave metaphor and then also... What it does, too, is kind of set up these adversarial time logics that you talk about in the article. And as I was sitting there reading this, I was just like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? When you set up a, a story of progress where you say, this is how it used to be back in the day, right? This is how we used to think and say, you know, maybe that's not as sophisticated or maybe it's more Primitive. We want to use an anthropological word, right? Uh, primitive. <laughs> That's how we speak, you know. <laughs> um, we love these
1: trials.
2: <laughs> um, but what it does then, right, is is set up people who still say, well, actually, I find something useful in this, or I find this to actually be how I still come to understand the world, right? Maybe I'm not accessing Freud. I'm not accessing this psychoanalytic. Literatures to understand X, Y, and Z, or whatever that puts them in a position where, as you talk about in the article, right there's this kind of this tension. There's def- defending that's happening on both sides um, as they kind of square off against each other. And and it for me it made me really sit and think about how this logic is really an incorporation of these Western colonial logics around time right and so what does it mean for us as as black feminists who practice many black feminisms right to to think along these lines Uh, what does it mean to have a professor tell me that I will grow out of intersectionality when it's I need to understand intersectionality to understand how people might perceive me right so you know um and and also this gets to this whole thing about theory needing to be sophisticated or novel and also just other things that we when we talk about the academy and things that you've artfully mentioned um that really get us caught up in kind of this kind of um white western colonial understanding of things i like what you say though about thinking about intersect intersectionality in particular but also black feminist Critical theory broadly does not have to be considered the discipline's past tense, right? There is a Mm -hmm. way to sit and think with all of these. And so you offer, right, this, what you call a translingual meeting space, a bridge Mm -hmm. language, um, which also, okay, sorry, this just in my mind. I'm like, (laughs) oh my gosh, so many things I want to say. One of those ways that I think you so artfully bring it in in the beginning um, is when you talk about you know young girls, people saying, oh, you you acting womanish, right? <laughs> you acting grown. And thinking about temporality, you're thinking about this relationship in that sense where in that moment, yes, she is a girl, but she's also acting grown, right? She's also moving towards this kind of womanliness. Um, so the way that that comes in the beginning and then you you bring it back in the end, um, I thought was was very artful. Um, so, you know, I'm going to just give you all the compliments anyway, so,
1: um, <laughs> just really quickly, um, just mm-hmm. a really quick comment about that. I always say before I was an academic, I was a writer and I was a writer before anything else. So, yeah, that there is an arts, about that. Mm-hmm. um, there's also a connection between this notion of time being cyclical and not linear. Um, and yeah, and I'm really happy that you picked up on that. Um, because, that was something that I was trying to denote in the paper.
2: Yeah. Well I I read it loud and clear. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you weren't trying, you did it. You definitely did it.
0: Yeah, it's like the that womanhood, that womanishness is always within us, which, you know, yeah, we can talk about as well, thinking about adultification of girls and things like that, right? Of black girls specifically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But
2: and- Yes. But to get to the bridge language, um, and I think this will round out our discussion of the articles to move. I think we have one more point and then we'll move into what in the world. Um, But this bridge language, this politic of letting go, this politic of surrender, where we say, hey, actually, let's resist the politics of the academy in which we have to typify ourselves, periodize ourselves. Do all of these things. Why not get back to the roots of black feminism? Period. Okay. Period. <laughs> right. Um I was wondering, and you talk about this in the articles. I think I just want to hear you talk about it. Um, this language of bridge. Mm-hmm. What does that do do for you as a philosopher, as a theorist, as opposed to, you know, people have you know coalition solidarity like all these other ways of talking about people coming together what does what does bridge open up for you
1: yes so a coalition to me um implies mutual interest whereas a bridge um denotes mutual exchange so Mm -hmm. people go back and forth between the bridge um, people don't go in and out of coalition. So like when you are in a coalition, you are in your group, but your group is in coalition with another one. When you have a bridge, there is constant moving back and forth of the actual constituents of the group. And that's what I wanted um, for this article. That's kind of what I wanted to um, to argue, is that we don't have to, as um, And I should also point out too, one of the things that I know I'm I'm about to like really bump heads with when I am revising this article is that, um, there is a generational, um, there, and it's funny to bring up time again, but there is a generational, um, divide between, um, the perception of my article among junior scholars and Mm. the perception among senior scholars. Mm. And so, um, for junior scholars, which this art this article is meant for junior scholars, it's not really meant for senior scholars. And so what I'm telling junior scholars and particularly black feminist scholars who are coming into the academy, who are doing the work, who are moving through the matriculation process and up to like their seniority and all that good stuff is that we don't have we don't have to do exactly what our foreparents did before us. We don't have to debate should feminism be called, black women be called black feminism or womanism. We don't have to debate whether black intersectionality is in the past or if it's in, in the contemporary moment. This is all of our tradition, it's all of our heritage and we can draw from any part of this rich resource that advances our project. And so if by project means, I in a modular way take some spillers and some lord if I take some nash and some hooks like what however you want to like mix that up however you want to combine it you know you you get to do that and there's nothing about these paradigms that is necessarily um, exclusive and there's nothing about um if there's nothing about um our projects as black feminists that disallows us from drawing from all of these resources that we have available to us yes these two paradigms that are visible in the academy but everywhere else everything things that are not in the academy things just that aren't in the north american academy you know Mm -hmm. and so that is kind of what I'm getting here by a bridge. By a bridge, I mean there are people who have a home somewhere, but they travel back and forth between this place and another location. And that's what I want to see. Um, that's the kind of the work that I want this, that I wanted this article to really um, uh, to really um, solidify for black feminist theorists, um, particularly um, uh, black feminist um, scholars who are junior scholars right now who in their um, dissertation committee and like through the uh, <laughs> through uh, the uh, politics <laughs> of like, you know, their mentors and their professors feel, mm-hmm. feel like they have to choose between one or the, or the other. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that's the case. Um, I am, even though, like I said, like I fought with Nash's book. And although I um, don't necessarily agree with Nash around um, what she the I don't necessarily agree around the utility what well, what she sees as the lack of utility um, in Black feminist um, Black feminist critical social theory as a theoretical paradigm in the present moment. Um, but there is so much in Jennifer Nash's scholarship and even in that book that you know really informs how I approached this work and how I'm approaching things like uh, moving forward and so. I really want us to disavow the notion that we have to um, have a binary between these two paradigms. Mm-hmm. I really want us to disavow the the, the feeling that uh, we can't draw from all of the traditions that we have access to. Um, yes, these two paradigms, but things that are outside the academy, things that are not in the Western Academy um, and so on. And so, yeah, I think um, that's what the bridge means to me. The bridge means that we can set up our homes anywhere we want to, and we can have that bridge to travel anywhere we want to.
0: That's lovely. I think, I think the you know the follow-up question that we were going to talk about is or is whether that's fugitive and how does that help us realize Black feminist futures. But I think we'll leave it to our listeners. I think we'll leave it to you all to decide because that bridge is the way that we move forward from. The whole idea of opposition and difference as being the most productive way to have intellectual discussions and intellectual growth so let us know what you all think is the yeah. bridge fugitive <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to our next segment our favorite segment which is, which is what? what what in the world what is in the world going on what? what's happening what i don't know <laughs> So we have mostly given uh, editorial control of this segment (laughs) to Naomi so even we are going to be surprised about what we talk about
2: (laughs) (laughs) we pitched the episode to Naomi um, and it's like girl whatever you want to talk about let's talk about and so we are going to talk about uh, this whole thing about these republicans and their friends who want to end critical race theory right so we were talking about critical social theory and black feminists um theory and so we're going to talk about that Naomi also wants to talk about fugitivity and resistance strategies right so like how do we do this how do we practice fugitivity and no we're not going to give you the one two three abc on fugitivity <laughs> um but we are going to talk about you know some ways that it can happen and again i want to underscore we're talking about Black people. Um, <laughs> um, just As if that earlier, needs to be said
0: anymore, on this I don't know. I just,
2: I, I just feel like, right. just I just feel like sometimes you have to keep saying you can't, it. Say it you can't say it
1: enough, can't say enough, yeah. right? And then
2: we're gonna talk about the situation with um, the panoramic and schools in K through twelve, and just the preventable tragedies that are there, but also its relationship to um, fugitivity. Naomi works at a school, um, can give us some tea on how, how can we navigate these complex situations, these complex worlds using Black feminist uh, critical social theory. So you want to start with um, CRT? you want to start with fug- fugitive pedagogy? Where do you want to start?
1: All right, so let's start with CRT. Um... Okay. And thank you for that transition. So (laughs) while we're transitioning, I'm also making a transition. So now I'm transitioning away from my scholarship activism more to my my formal work in um, education. So with that being said, um, I'm sure everyone has been um, seeing all of these different new stories that are coming out about Mm -hmm. um, the war on, quote unquote, critical race theory, (laughs) um, which is really fascinating. It's such a misnomer what what the phenomenon actually is and what's actually going on. But this whole crusade against critical race theory that we, quote unquote, critical race theory that we see um, sweeping um, different legislatures, a lot of them mostly in the South and the Midwest, but it's really fascinating how it's really fascinating how these developments are really shaping up and um it, it remains to be seen um what the outcome and impacts of this is going to be. So um I guess I will just start. I mean there's so many different ways to um, approach this topic and there's so many different um there's so um such so many pieces in this like and it's all moving because this is you know, um, this is all happening, like, day by day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I kind of just wanted to do was just kind of um, kind of take a step back um, and let, let's kind of, like, move beyond the news headlines and kind of discuss this as a structurated instance of politics mm-hmm. and um, to kind of think about, like, what is, what is the actual maneuvers that are actually, like, happening here? What are we witnessing? And so, um, earlier this year, well, last year I started this paper and I finished it earlier this year. But um, I just finished um, a paper uh, around March. Um, this paper is called um, "To Mold People into a Common Intellectual Pattern: Power, Knowledge, and mm-hmm. the Curriculum Culture Wars," and it looks at like the long array of um, struggles um, over the over the curriculum. Um, stretching back from the early nineteen hundreds um, up to the present day, and when you take that long durée, you see that this is not this is just a flashpoint of much mm. in a very long history of um, struggles for the curriculum, and it has precedents. Um, it has we have lessons that we can learn from from that from that history. And it also gives us that wider glimpse of what's actually going on here. And so, um, really quickly, I think it's really important to note that right now, like you know, we're talking about um, we're talking about uh, critical race theory, and both critical race theory and also black feminist critical social theory, and also black postmodernism, which I'm writing a book on right now, all fall under this um, tradition of Africana or Black critical theory, which is also related to the capital C, capital T critical theory from the French Mm -hmm. school and all that good stuff that has its problems, but we're not going to go there. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) it's really interesting, you know, it's really interesting that we're in this moment where people are saying that Black feminist critical theory and Black critical theory and critical theory in general is so outmoded when no one's telling Um, students not to read Sexton, they're telling students not to read Crenshaw and Bell, and write all these critical theories. So it's really interesting that that's happening. And with that being said, um, it's really fascinating how um, in education specifically, um, conflict exists beneath the surface. It doesn't exist on top of the surface. So no one's seeing in these debates that pretty much that what we're doing is trying to um, con- ideologically consolidate knowledge, such that we can um, minimize the number of people who are accessing critical consciousness hmm. through these forms of um, subversive knowledges that are finding them, their ways into um, education. And so, this um, notion that like we're crusading against critical race theory is so be fascinating because we're really crusading against not critical race. Theory theory, but anti-racism in education. Mm. And that's a very different Mm. fight. We're fighting anti-racism in education, not critical race theory. And no one is ever going to come out and say, you know, no one's ever going to say, like, we don't want anti-racism in school, what they're gonna say is we don't want critical race theory. And so it's really interesting like how conservatives are so successful at um, shifting the Overton window over to their side, dominating the language of discourse and public public conversation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so what's going on right now is a struggle against anti-racists and other forms of critical conscious education. Um, and I'm borrowing critical consciousness from um, free area right now. But anti-racism, feminism, queer theory, Marxism, you know, all of these different critical theories that, you know, have found their ways into schools in the various struggles that they represent. So anti-racist struggles, struggles for um, gender justice. And so all of these um, all of these are operating in our schools, but these are not operating in the sense that you know, there's very few teachers, and I can attest to this working in schools, there are very few teachers who um, even know what critical race theory is to even (laughs) act like they want to instruct it. But there are very teachers who do believe that um, education should be anti-racist. And so it's really fascinating how this is uh, shaping up and it really does like, it really does, it really does remain to be seen what the impact is going to be, mostly because on one side we have conservatives who are so good at dominating the language of discourse and then on the other side we have a whole industry of quote-unquote progressive academics that are pretty much making an industry of trying to explain what critical race theory is. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm just like that's not a, that's not opposition. Yeah, opposition. I think <laughs> I
0: think the idea Ooh, of the misnomer, tea. like the that you said, you know, this is a misnomer, is so important. I think that this whole moral panic around critical race theory is very much part and parcel of this whole fake news idea, right? Like I heard, I heard someone say or someone write, they were like, "Words mean what we want them to mean," and I think I think actually in this context, they were defending, uh, they were defending. Like gender neutral pronouns or something like that. And I was just like, no, words don't really mean what we want them to mean. They have a meaning and language and words and meanings can evolve, but words still mean what they mean. When they say critical race theory in the news, particularly conservatives, they're not talking about critical race theory. And I think people use this idea that, oh, language, language evolves and you know, look at how we're using language today and how it changes, they're using that as a way to say whatever they want about things that they don't like, or using it to mean other things. And so I think Mm -hmm. if you actually look deeper into the legislation that's actually being passed, and they say this is this is against critical race theory, the legislation itself never actually says critical race theory in it. It says things like, you cannot sorry. teach history yeah. about slavery, like mm-hmm. things that are actual factual <laughs> things is what it actually says. But the sorry, but the but like critical race theory itself ends up being like a distraction.
1: No, mm-hmm. you're still right about that. It is a distraction and a misnomer. Um, and to your point about like what these policies are actually saying, I think one of the most ridiculous outlandish ones I saw actually came from here in South Carolina where they said you cannot <laughs> you cannot teach that a race is categorically responsible for anything and I'm just like what does that mean uh, <laughs> you can't I mean, teach you can't <laughs> teach that a race is categorically responsible for anything
2: hmm. uh, yeah that's interesting <laughs> I I think South Carolina is a trendsetter in a lot of um, horrible ways, but also in a lot of you know good ways. I think the the black people who flee, who uh, practice fugitivity and <laughs> leave. I'm just kidding. Um, produce a lot of great things, but yeah, I think just listening to you two and it just made me think about like what you're saying exactly, right? This this mis this misnomer of critical race theory really being a flashpoint for because we're not really talking about race, right? We're we're talking about blackness right it's not about everybody who falls in, in certain markers of difference right it's, it's in particularly an attack on black and and a lot of times indigenous people depending on the state that you're in
1: absolutely like, and, and, so, and it's also it also um i don't know why like this people don't realize this but this is also about protecting american exceptionalism we can't mm-hmm. we don't want to teach that you we know, don't that this country is fundamentally racist. We don't want to teach that this country is sexist. We don't want you know we don't want to teach that there's inequality, that meritocracy is a myth. We don't want these ideas circulating. And so this is also very much so about protecting American exceptionalism, um, which obviously we know is very um, core to advancing the notion that everything that America does, both domestically and on the world stage is benevolent, benign. Um, Mm. and always justified because of the goodness of our American intentions, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is very much so um, protecting what um, scholars for a very long time, um, stretching back to like um, the 30s with the miseducation of the Negro, to the 70s with schooling in capitalist America, um, that, you know, that our schooling system is very much so designed to um, um to uh, baptize um students um and the youngest members of our society into all the american mythologies that are needed to sustain and reproduce um our imperialist white supremacist capitalist you know dot 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 Mm -hmm. um society and it's absolutely the case i mean that's fundamentally what's being argued here is that um yeah you can't um pu- you can't do counter ideological work in education you can't teach kids that um that these myths that prop up and reproduce our society our society are exactly that myths
2: right because if you did that then who would join the military um mm. <laughs> on that note um since we're talking about education, I think maybe we could transition to the Fugitive Pedagogy and Black Education book that you were really excited about. Um, And um, we could talk about, yeah, Fugitive Pedagogy, Black Education, knowing that we are entrenched in these systems that, as you say, are trying to present a certain type of ideological baptism. Like I'm writing that down here because that's, that's Naomi When I talk about it, I'm going to cite you, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um. Yeah. So, what what do you think are examples of fugitive pedagogy? If you want, we can go that route, or we can just to talk about the book a little bit um, more closely. Wherever you want to take us, let's go.
1: Yeah, I just really quickly say about this book because right now it is um, it is pretty much. Um, the foremost um, book in the present moment in um, Black um, pedagogical and educational studies and for good reasons, I don't think there's, um, a more appropriate time for us to be thinking about the long durée of black anti-racist education and, um, what those precedents are, what the struggles were and how we have continuity with those struggles and what is our, um, new challenges in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And so, um, um, uh, givens the um givens the author of fugitive pedagogy um does two at least two really important maneuvers in my personal opinion one um givens provides a um black studies revisionist interpretation of the miseducation of the negro written by carter g whitson in 1933 um which is really important because that book has not been really theorized, Mm -hmm. I would argue ever really, but it certainly has not been taken as a serious theoretical project in a very long time. And the last, the rest real um, Black thought tradition to really look at that book as a theoretical source um, was like the Black nationalist movements of um, the mid to late um, 1900s. And in those movements, you know, that project is very different from what um, Givens is doing. So that's like one important thing that Givens does with this book, but also secondly, um, Givens also also provides a framework for understanding what makes anti-racist, black anti-racist education fugitive and what have black teachers in Here, we're Mm -hmm. specifically talking about teachers, not professors. What have Black teachers sacrificed in order to provide this um, insurgent, um, what um, Stuart Hall refers to as the globally contrary knowledge? Like, Mm -hmm. What have Black teachers sacrificed from Anna Julia Cooper being fired um, as a principal of a public school in the 1930s, 1940s? Um, all the way up to now where we just had another principal fired, um, just, uh, last month at a school board meeting for doing the same thing. And so what a black school teacher sacrificed in order to provide this anti-racist education and what are the stakes today? Mm-hmm. So definitely check out the Pedagogy. It's a, it's a, it's a great book. And, um, I think it speaks to so much of what's happening in this present moment, um, with, the war on Black anti-racist education.
2: Just in hearing what you're saying, I think one thing also to highlight about fugitivity, right, is that it requires a sacrifice, right? And so, like, we talked about it earlier, like I think what I was really trying to get at earlier, right, is, like, you can't be fugitive and still be kind of all up and in these systems, right? That is actually (laughs) the opposite of What does Mohan
1: say? To be in, not of?
2: Right, Mm. and so can you be fugitive and be the headliner for an academic conference right can you be fugitive and lead all these different things and do all these different things I don't know I just I think that was really important to talk about like that sacrifice right if we're fleeing this anti-black oppressive system we have that means we can't be everybody's favorite right that means we can't be seen as at the top of things but that's it. That's all I had to say, Alyssa. You can no, say no. I w-
0: well, I was just going to ask you a question about your own experience with teaching.
2: Oh, yeah, go ahead. You can ask me. That was it. Anything. What was your experience
0: with teaching and and, and teaching oh. and particularly having to serve lower, like serving lower income, black students? Even though you were teaching science, did you find yourself incorporating, we'll call it anti-racism, pedagogy?
2: Ooh. Ooh, how much am I willing to tell on myself?
0: Um, (laughs) You are past that time.
2: (laughs) I am. I am. And you know, there's nothing people can do to me at this point. All my students are grown, grown, grown. And hello, if you're listening, I miss you and I love you. Um, um, I
0: miss times.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I miss you and I love you so much. Um, So, yeah, I think one of the things about teaching that teach – for America never told me was that nobody's going to like you if you are the person that's like oh hey that's racist like or oh that's anti black <laughs> why are we doing this why are you t- why are you telling the kids they can't wear um, sleeveless things because their families don't teach them how to wash why are you saying that girls can't show certain parts of their body but Boys can. And so I was that teacher that um, did not enforce certain rules in the classroom, right? So I was like, I'm not going to police what you wear. I'm not going to police how you talk because that was also part of the school code was kids can't um, curse. And I'm like, these are high schoolers. Like, they're going to say what they're going to say. And so I was like, as long as y'all are not using um, defamatory language and you're not talking to me. And you're not talking to each other any kind of way. Say what you need to say. You know, um, do you? You almost grown. Like I'm gonna give you this independence because I trust that you are a human being who, who within parameters, right, can can work with it. Um, so I was not the the favorite teacher, speaking from personal experience. Um, in and actually, what ended up happening was that the administration uh, attempted to fire me even though I was the best science teacher that they had, right? I had the highest scores that they had ever had at the school. Um, And so they found reasons to try to fire me. Um, One of them being that I didn't have the right date on my board one time when they came into my classroom. Um, And so, which, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina schools are not very different from each other. Um, So I would say like as an educator, A lot of what i did was fugitive there were lessons that i had where we had to learn about genetics but i turned that into a lesson on eugenics and Mm. we talked about sterilizing black and latino women in prison um i had several moments in classes where i had to sit there because my students were so distracted and so unfocused and so i had to have a conversation with them and i was like Hey, I hope y'all understand that like this entire system was made this way so that you would be so disengaged with this material that you would score so low that you would not be able to move on in your life and you would have to work at McDonald's Mm -hmm. or you would have to work at a factory or you would have to work for Amazon now or you would have to do all these things. And there's no shade to people who work there, of course, but I'm just saying that um, that these systems are created like our education system is created to create an underclass of people mm. like that. And my students, I, I had to help them understand that as they got older, yes, they started manifesting this disinvestment in their education, but it started with teachers that believed that they were not worthy of high level education. And so that's why I told them, I said, I'm so sorry that your former science teachers did not believe in you. I'm so sorry that they did not see you as a person and that they did not value you enough to actually teach you the things that you need to know to progress in life. Um, and I think we really do Black kids a disservice by telling them, oh, go to college. Oh, aim aim high, aim this, aim that. And we know that we have school systems that actually literally prevent them in every step from actually being able to do that. Mm. So we have kids, I'm talking about my babies, right, in their early 20s who are so disillusioned because... When they were in fourth or fifth grade and they needed particular reading or science skills, their teacher did not do that for them. She just played a movie, right? And so now they're 21 and they're trying to understand why they don't understand certain things in college. Like, I had kids who were 16, 17 years old in science class who didn't, didn't know what plants need to grow. Hmm. Right. And we, it's like we were talking about critical race theory under siege and like all these things. It's it's it was really heartbreaking for me as a teacher to see then when I would try to, to teach them these things like as an anthropologist and I'm telling them I'm an anthropologist. I'm not really a science teacher like that. I'm an anthropologist. So I'm going to tell you the the global thing of things and then I'm going to teach you the science behind it as well. But I want you to understand that, like, you're not supposed to know that this is how the system was created. Um, so I do think part of the retaliation and trying to get me fired, um, especially in my second year when I was already on my way to graduate school, um, was that I was teaching the kids things that made them a little less, uh, compliant Mm -hmm. at times with rules like wear shirts with sleeves (laughs) or don't show your stomach or, you know. Stuff that doesn't matter. Um, But that's that on that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, but I so those of you don't know or this might be your first time listening. I used to teach high school, so 10th, 11th and 12th graders um, back in the day. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a teacher in a classroom now. Right. Like teaching in covid, teaching online or really, truly in person, depending on where you are and so I think our last thing that we're gonna talk about today is the COVID K through 12 situation. And Naomi, I know you had a few things you wanted to say about that. So I'm gonna open up with you.
1: Sure, I'll also be really brief because I know we don't have a whole lot of time. Um, <laughs> and oh my God, like where he even start and or end. Um, but I will just say really quickly that um, I am positioned in a really unique space in terms of how I am interfacing with and um, understanding the whole um, school reopening, the 2021 school reopenings. Mm. And that positionality is being in a combined um, middle and elementary school um, Mm. that is a public charter school in the state of South Carolina. So there's a lot there. Mm. I'm dealing with the youngest students Um, I'm in the South, and I'm dealing with the students whose parents took them out of the district school because they felt like they were not um, getting a quality education. So these Mm -hmm. are parents who desperately want their kids to be educated. And so my school is majority Black, um, and um, my faculty is majority White. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting, you know, how Um, how risk is um, registered or not when it comes to the lives of black students um, at a public school in South Carolina. And so it is um, such a grim situation because I've had whole classes get quarantined, um, whole entire classes get quarantined, Um, whole grades have been quarantined um nationally kids are dying at a rate of three a day from covid um south carolina refuses to allow a mask mandate in public schools majority of public school teachers do not want to wear masks we are in the south don't forget that and majority of public school teachers nationally but especially in the south are white women in south carolina Mm -hmm. it's about 77 percent, which is a little bit higher than the national average so um It is a thing where, you know, there is no protections um, statewide and there are no protections um, for a lot of students district in a lot of districts some districts have decided to go against the ma- um go against the governor's orders and institute mass mandates anyways so brendan your old district is one of those districts
2: um,
1: <laughs> district two showing out <laughs> district two The so Richland district two in okay. columbia south carolina and also mm-hmm. all schools in the city of columbia also have decided to go against the governor's mandate and institute um, um, mass mandates, but that's not the case across the board and it's not the case in my school, unfortunately. And so mm-hmm. it's a really grim situation because um, um, the youngest among us cannot be vaccinated and the um, the those of us who have the most personal responsibility to get vaccinations don't wanna be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And so, there is so much risk right now for students, not to mention that like, there's a whole mental health crisis that's associated with the um, non-response that um, students um, experienced last year with the whole um, immediate and abrupt um, restructuring of their like entire, schooling experiences, Mm -hmm. the being home, some students being forced to spend additional time with abusers, Mm -hmm. um, some students because of not being able to be at school, losing out on important lunches and breakfasts. And and so all of these factors are like playing into how um, this failed school reopening moment is happening. And um, it really is a crisis. And unfortunately, um, both the Department of Education um, and every single, the Federal Department of Education, everything down, even though the, the Federal Department of Education, postures a little bit better in terms of how they say that they are integrating the um, best practices um, that are coming out of the research literature and the CDC and others but the case the fact of the matter is both at the federal level and at all of the state levels there is just the belief that kids can be sacrificed so that u.s Mm -hmm. foods and college board and all the contractors Mm -hmm. can get their money Mm -hmm. and um, that that is the case. We believe that students are sacrificable, so that the SATs can still be administered, so that mm. the contractors can still, like you know, provide the school lunches. And um, it really is sad, and it's a really grim reality that um, our youngest and most vulnerable are being sacrificed for um, the profit of a few. Um, education um, industries that profit off of schooling and education, but it is the case. And um, I think that, well, I know that um, by the end of the academic year, I really do believe that people are going to see that this was the wrong decision. And um, I just am really sad that so many children have to perish in order to prove that point.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so that the education, so that the education adjacent industries can run, but also so that their parents can go back to work. I mean, a lot of these decisions are coming down to economic ones, and it's the mm-hmm. econo- it's to the economic benefit of the state. And I think, I just think it's funny how they're like, oh no, we can't police whether or not students wear masks, but they can police whether or not students are wearing sleeveless shirts or crop tops in class. It's like, make it make some sense. And then no, on the last thing, being here in Martinique thing. has been <laughs> eye-opening in terms of the way that they've done the reopening. They too have reopened with the, the, the college students. They're doing kind of hybrid situations here. But for, sorry, did I say college students? I meant high school students. It's middle school in French is college. <laughs> Things are getting mixed up in my brain but yeah. for the primary school students they basically have class on TV so on the public networks that everyone who has a television has um, has access to they have all of their lessons for the day I, I believe it's like a national level lesson and then I think they're doing the rest of their work online with the teacher so that they do have um, so they do have someone to like talk to them and instruct them more than just the homework that's on TV. And it's like, why, why could, how did they sort this out over a summer over the span of a year as well? Because there was a lot of time to prepare for the 2021, 2022 school year. So how is it that they here managed to figure that out in France? This is like a French system. And yet in the U S they were like, We'll just send them all to school.
2: Well, you not know what it. they say about American capitalism. capitalism. <laughs> it's, a death, it's a death trap. It's yeah. a death trap. Um, and we are all being hurled towards the fire in at varying distances, in my opinion. Because um, even those at the top of the pyramid cannot escape death.
1: Well, that I think... um i think that is a really good capstone for the (laughs) imperativeness of fugitivity Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um yeah we have to we have to resist these systems in the ways that we can um and yeah should we close out is this yes Thank you it,
0: so much, Naomi. Yes.
2: This has
1: been fantastic. Yes. Thanks again for having me on. It was such an incredible honor. And um, I'm just happy, like, yeah, we got to do it finally. Yay.
2: Yes. We've, we've been, <laughs> I've been, like, texting Naomi for a long time. Like, it's is happening. It's happening. It
1: happened uh, at the perfect time. Yeah. At the perfect exactly. time. Yeah.
2: True.
1: And I mean, it's so perfect. I literally just got my, like, Notification today that my article was accepted, so like literally the perfect time.
2: Yes, um, the universe is shining upon you. So uh that is all we That's have. Just
1: this highlight. Oh, oh,
2: oh excuse me. <laughs> okay, okay, she said I have the the universal highlight is a popping today. Thank you. Um, Thank you. No, popping. <laughs> Well, that is all that we have for y'all today. Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and me, Brendan Pines, um, and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you.
0: Thank you all so much for your support you like this episode please share it with your friends family or frenemies we would love to hear what you have to say about the episode so please be sure to follow us on instagram at zora's daughters and on twitter at zora's underscore daughters for transcripts syllabi and information on how to cite us or donate visit our website zorasdaughters.com and if you want to get more of the wonderful naomi you can reach out to her on twitter at Naomi_Edu
2: yes we love to see the support we love to see the engagement and last but not least especially not during this mercury and micro braids sipping gatorade (laughs) (laughs) we must remember that we have to take care of ourselves and each other
0: bye bye
1: you can say bye oh bye everyone